<clears throat> what we'll do is we're going to go through more on this class on bloodlines and battles. And so here's our outline. I added this one today, the Bereans. And so it wasn't, no one's probably paying attention to that, but it was a little addition because there was a few things that I wanted to get to that I kept trying to the last couple of weeks and we didn't that we're just going to start with. So we're going to look at the Bereans and here's our objectives. Number one, we're going to look at truth, kind of uh, closing in on some things we talked with on the, the way of Cain. And then who are the Bereans? And so the Bereans would be like the opposite side of the way of Cain. So the way of Cain is not necessarily the line of Cain. There is the bloodline, but the way of Cain is a way of thinking. It's our world. And you see it permeates, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, even the good line of Seth and to Shem with Abraham and the patriarchs would do things like what Mike was saying in his sermon According to my own eyes, what's right in my own eyes, that's the way of Cain, where you kind of make up your own rules. The Bereans would be ones who follow God. Then we're going to look at the patriarchs uh, and a few of those genealogies. Uh, and so you, if so the guy was asking for those, you can always take a picture of the slide, and I'll, I'll pause there when we get to that. And then what about our heart? So we're going to start up here with the truth, with a capital T, and this kind of uh, summarizes a little bit of this way of Cain. So in John chapter 8, Jesus speaking to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Think about your testimony. Think about Christ's testimony. And what is he saying? He's saying, I am. And sometimes Christ will say, I am, and period, that's it. Uh, And some of those we'll talk about later. Other times he will say, I am, with a definition. But you notice Christ is different from angels. Angels will do that as well. I am, and then a subset definition of what they are, which is not the big deal. Jesus is I am, and he is the big deal. I am the light of the world. I am the truth. There's many many things he will say further defining what it means to be I am self-existent, always in the presence, not bound by time. Of course, as a human, he was bound by time. So he has a dual nature. He goes on. Jesus answered and said to them, because they said, your testimony is not valid. He said, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. And of course, the technicality in the law is two or three witnesses. So you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where do you think the technicalities of the law come from? They come from the nature of God. So there can only be two or three witnesses to something of what is absolutely true because no one's else testimony even matters. So what Jesus is saying is, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. Think about that for a minute. It doesn't matter what any other being in the universe says. I am the only thing that understands what is true. I know. And how does he know? I know where I came from. This is a fascinating thought. You do not know. I do know. Number one, only an eternal, if you're eternal, you're infinite, you're self-existing. Only an eternal being is able to know the truth of his origin. Any finite creature has to take on faith how he came to be. So let's just think about Satan. Starts as Lucifer, falls to Satan. Does Satan know his origin? 
He cannot know it. He has to take it by faith. That could be one of the reasons why he chose to fall. Because he saw, because he would have been the angels on day one of creation. They would have seen all sorts of things that God created from days one, two, three, four, five, six. He did not predate creation. He is not self-existent. He was a created being. Surely you were perfect in all your ways until iniquity was found in you, God says of him in Ezekiel. So he was a created being. He even says from the day you were created within the space-time continuum. He doesn't exist before creation. He could have seen God create Barah, something out of nothing, all sorts of aspects of creation, but not himself. He has to take that on faith, that that's how he came to be. That could be part, we don't know all of the things that go through in his mind, but he doesn't know the truth. God to Job, where were you when I created the earth? You weren't even here yet. So what about the origin of Lucifer? Did he have an origin, a point constrained within time that he came to be? Yes. He knew what the truth was, God told him, but he knew it by being told. He didn't know it from already existing in it. And so he didn't hold to that and stay with it. The Alpha and the Omega is totally different. Never had a point of origin. There is no origin for him. He is not constrained by time. He self-exists, therefore he's infinite. All else is finite. So you see what Jesus is meaning when he says, my testimony is true because I know where I came from. And that means he was eternal. There was no origin. It's an amazing concept to spin your head around. How do you know that? I was there. The ultimate I was there statement. No statement even matters other than what I say. That's what Jesus is saying. He is the truth. I am the truth. Singular. So now here we have the truth. Jesus goes before Pilate with the Jews. They bring him up before Pilate. He's on his judgment seat. And so Pilate brings him in to have a little private interview. And Jesus says, that is why I was born. What an interesting statement by a criminal. That is why I was born, to give testimony to the truth. All men who hear the truth hear my voice. Number two, to truly hear Jesus Christ is to hear the truth. To hear the truth. So Pilate looks at him and says, truth? Kind of this rhetorical manner. What is truth? And he is looking truth right in the eye. And the question is, was he seeking the truth? If you were actually seeking the truth, you said, you're born to give testimony to the truth. If you're actually curious, because wouldn't that get your interest level up a little bit? I was born to give testimony to the truth. I've never heard anyone say that. Well, tell me about the truth then. Let me see if you're internally consistent. Let me see what you have to say. But Pilate was not seeking. He just asked a joking, mocking, what is truth? And he turns and walks away. He's not interested in saying, come, let us talk about this together. Let us reason together. He's not interested in that at all. And we see the little g-god of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They can't see the truth. It requires the act of God to open their hearts. We go back to Jesus as he's before the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the religious leaders. They too were in direct communication with the truth, with this singular truth uh, as, as Jesus, as he manifests himself as a human. What do they want to do? They want to kill him. They want to kill this guy. They don't like the truth. Um, they want to kill it. Sinful man can't stand the truth existing with him. And so it's amazing to look at the truth standing before this trial. 
Matthew 20, uh, 26, 57, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. This is before he's crucified. So the Roman cohort, John 17, he prays. Then John 18 is the garden. John 18, he's now arrested. The Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. So Caiaphas is the high priest. Why did they go to Annas first? What's their relationship? Annas is the father-in-law, and so he's the old one, but he was deposed by Rome. So Rome said, you're out, son-in-law Caiaphas is in, but the Jews still look to Annas. But technically, Caiaphas holds power in Rome's eyes, but together, those would be the two high priests. So we have Annas and Caiaphas. What party, like Democrat, Republican, what are those guys? Pharisees is a good guess. Probably what I would have said. What is that? She takes the other side. Sadducees. These guys are Sadducee. The Sadducees, let's go to Acts 23. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. There is no angel. There is no spirit. But the Pharisees recognize them all. So the power of Judaism, the high priest, both of them, the, the father-in-law and the guy who's technically the high priest. But you notice the Jews are going to Annas first. So Annas and Caiaphas are Sadducees. There is no angel. There is no resurrection. That is the power in Jerusalem, in the temple at this time, the Sadducees. So let's think about Jesus as he gets put into this grave and the stone is rolled over. They're going to have an indent here where this big massive stone gets rolled, sinks into the ground, and then the Roman guard stamps it and seals it. That's where Jesus is. And if you're in power, there is no resurrection, there is no angel, you've got a little problem. They're just going to see a little clip. And so it's an amazing thing to just start thinking this through. And notice, uh, you'll read the different accounts, one angel, two angels. They're all just different parts to put the story together. So there's more than one angel that shows up. The earthquake was not nearly big enough. And they fall to the ground. They're not knocked out. They're still aware of what's going on. But they fall in. What's your response when you see an angel? Almost everyone throughout time. Fear. You have this fear of this being that comes down from heaven. This amazing sight. And then he just rolls that stone. And then Jesus walked right out, right? Jesus didn't walk out of that grave. He had already gone out. The stone couldn't hold him in. What they're doing, what the angel is doing, is revealing, you guys are guarding an empty tomb. He's already gone through the stone. Look, check it out. And everyone comes, they see the empty tomb. But you notice the guards didn't see the body of Jesus walk out of the tomb. They're the ones that saw him roll the stone away. So they go, and there's a large group of them. Some of them go to the Sadducees, the high priest. What's the penalty now for the Roman soldiers? Death. They lost their charge. They're not holding the tomb. Well, where's the dude? The, the tomb's empty. So they are now walking dead men. They're, they're going to be executed. But they're thinking, How, what, what do we do? The only shot they have is to go to the guys they know who can help cover for them politically with Pilate and the Roman authorities. So they go to the Jewish high priest and say, dudes, we need some help here because something happened. There was this angel. We were afraid. We were on the ground We saw him, though, and he just rolled that stone, and it's empty. So we saw two things with our own two eyes. What did we see? Angels and what? 
some resurrected body because it's empty. And we were guarding that tomb the whole time. And there's nobody in it. He went through the stone. Ah, what if you're a Sadducee? you got a problem. You've got some issues because there's angels and there's a resurrection. So they, hey, we're going to do a bribe and they do their deal. We're going to pay you money and we will interfere with Pilate on your behalf for you. But I have a question. Where's the intellectual curiosity? If you're a Sadducee, you not only have the power, but you don't believe in resurrection, you don't believe in angels. You've just got this massive story just demolishing the center of your belief system. Would you not be curious to go check out the tomb? Why did they never do that? Deep down, they know. They know. Yeah, gum it. This is true. And they don't even want to investigate. Any normal person who's actively seeking the truth would go look. But if they already know the truth and they define the truth in their own mindset, they're going to reject anything that even looks at the truth because then they realize they'd be wrong. Number three, the way of Cain. That would be the Pharisees and Sadducees. They belong to the way of Cain. The way of Cain has no intellectual curiosity to attempt verifying the truth. No intellectual curiosity to attempt verifying the truth. That sure sounds like our world today, doesn't it? No, we will not look at that because we dictate truth and here's what it is. You see this happening rapidly now. First John 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is a spirit of the Antichrist whom you heard is coming and is already now in the world. So this will manifest in one particular guy in the tribulation, but the spirit of the Antichrist, did it start here? with the time of Jesus. No, it goes clear back to Satan in the garden. Antichrist doesn't have to mean simply against Christ. It means in place of Christ. Where does the Antichrist sit? In place of Christ in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, just where Antiochus did in about 168 BC. I will make myself like the Most High. Yes, I oppose him, but I want to be him. I am a high priest. I am a Sadducee. I determine truth. I am God. That's the way of Cain. They know what the truth is. It could be Satan. It could be Cain. It could be the way of Cain. It can be the Sadducees, the high priest. It could be in our world today. I know the truth, but I'm going to reject it. Number four, deep down, the way of Cain knows the truth, yet chooses to blatantly reject it. Look at our world today at how this plays out. You can see how things, we're not, we're not there yet, but you can see how this thought process will pinnacle and climax to one guy at the end. So the truth has to be consistent with reality, and the Sadducees have no interest to test reality. They want to define it themselves, the way of Cain. So now we look at John the Baptist and how different he is. Speaking of Jesus, in John 3, John the Baptist says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. It's about him. It's not about me. And he had a big following of guys. He who comes from above is above all. He is, or he is of the earth, is from the earth, and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So now we're going to move to the Bereans in Acts 17. Now these, the Bereans, were no, more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word 
the gospel that Paul was preaching with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Multiple concepts you can have in this verse, but number one, what is God's judgment of the Bereans? These are good. These are noble-minded. These are guys you should be like. Why? They want the truth. Did the Sadducees want the truth, the Pharisees? They're always rebuking the truth, rejecting the truth. We don't want the truth. And we aren't even intellectually curious enough to go investigate reality because we want to define it in our own mind. But the Bereans, with great eagerness, are accepting the truth. They're looking for the truth. Paul is speaking, and this is fascinating because they don't have the Gospels yet. This is Acts. So what are they doing? They're looking at the Old Testament scriptures to judge, is Paul speaking truth? And they're checking, and they're checking every day. They didn't check once or twice. They're checking every day. So they're looking for truth. And now, okay, here's a guy speaking. Let's see if he is consistent with the inspired word of God. Number five, the Bereans were eager for the truth, yet they would daily test everything against scripture. And now, of course, we have a more full scripture than they did. Think of the, the, the thinking that we have as fallen humans. How many of us will have this idea? We talked about the way of Cain several weeks ago. Oh, poor Cain. I mean, he got, got kind of screwed. We did that talk on a Sunday where we know from Peter's sermon that all the prophets, clear back to Abel, spoke. We don't know everything that was written, but they all spoke of at least one thing, and that was the suffering of the Messiah. So we know that Abel and Cain discussed that concept of what sacrificial death means, what atonement means. They saw it happen with Adam and Eve. Cain knew what the sacrifice was and what was required, and he rejected it and did his own. We covered that a few weeks ago. We had that class on a Sunday, the very next Monday at work. We have a bunch of Christian folks at our work, and a guy who's a good Christian, it was interesting, unrelated thing, he was talking, I mean, and I mean, look at Cain, the poor sucker didn't know anything, and wham, he gets nailed. Well, that's not true. Cain knew, and he rejected, but you notice how we do, I'll give you another one, Esau, poor Esau, I mean, the guy gets screwed. He, I mean, Jacob is this weasel. And you read, and don't you read that? And you say, I kind of like Esau, the big man of the field, and he just kind of gets bamboozled by this weasel. Wait a minute. You notice we, we fall in the way of Cain naturally. We naturally read that story and think, Esau's getting screwed here. He, he's getting the old maid card. We should read scripture, and we're not going to delve into Esau, but God hates Esau. And that's not random. That's not arbitrary. There's reasons for it. But you notice how we side with Esau over the snake Jacob. We need to check our thinking. So that's just something to look at. This one was an interesting one. Of, of We're looking at the Bereans, and do we search the truth? I, I like just showing pictures. It kind of helps. Here we have Abraham killing Isaac, uh, or being willing to kill Isaac. And a couple weeks we talked about this, and I said, you know, he'd be probably an older teenager at this point in time. Uh, and it was very interesting. Uh, is it Christine or Kristen? Oh, she's not here today. I thought she was here. Um, anyway, she came and mentioned something. I said, oh, that's interesting. They go to Mount Moriah, and then they come back. And it's, because sometimes the Bible's not chronological. You have to be careful. After these things, Rebecca is born. Wow. So you start doing the math. How old was Isaac as he's carrying the wood and doing the stuff? Well, he, his max age would be about 39 or 40, but he would have been in his mid-30s. 
And so how much different is the story of Isaac, a full-grown man with a beard? Changes your perspective of that story, especially in a, in a secular culture that would do sacrifice of the firstborn. And it just makes you think differently about that story. Uh, so she had pointed that out to me, and, and I knew he wasn't this little kid, but I thought, well, oh, that was interesting, and wow, you go study that out. That is true. That is a fascinating thing. Are we willing to change what we think for something God says? What is this? What's that? No, it ain't. That has nothing to do with Noah's Ark. But here's a thought, and I've I've gone through, we're we're just going to kind of rapid fire go through a few things. That is not Noah's Ark. That can't float. There's no dinosaurs. All these, they can't fit. That is a myth and a fairy tale. I'll propose this to you, and it's pretty true. If you saw something in Sunday school on a flannel graph, it is false. I'll say that again. If you saw something in Sunday school on a flannel graph, it is false. How many have seen that on a flannel graph? Everybody, that's false. That's not Noah's Ark. That's teaching you God's worth is a, is a myth. There's no way that boat is surviving a year in turbulent water. That ain't the Ark of Noah. It's a depiction to tell you God's word is not true. You see that? So we're going to go through a couple of these. I thought an interesting Sunday school series would be things that ain't and just take flannel graphs and why they're almost all wrong. Here's another one. Who's that? How do you know it's David? That ain't David. But it's pictured David, the little boy who doesn't even know how to hold a sword. He's going to cut his hand, and he's sitting there drowning in the armor. If the survival of your nation hinges on this battle, Saul was taller by a head and shoulder than all the other men, you would not willingly put this armor that's too big. Nowhere in Scripture does it say the armor is too big. Nowhere. Yet we look at that, this little stinkhead of a kid that wouldn't be able to do anything. Saul's not nearly big enough anyway, and they purposely take armor that's too big. What did David say? I haven't practiced with this armor. David has a different strategy. He is not playing defense. Remember you led the, a youth, the poem of Lamech on the line of Cain, I killed a man for striking me and a boy, a Yeled. That is not a six-year-old boy. It can mean a boy, and it can mean anything up to a young man. What it really means is, in this instance, in Genesis, a warrior in his prime. But he's a young man, not an old man. This is Mike Tyson at age 19. That is a Yeled. Iron Mike. Look at that dude. People lived in fear of the boy. He was 19. Na'ar is another word. Na'ar is youth. Now that can mean David was a Na'ar. That could mean the 12 spies that went into the promised land. Na'ar, young men. Isaac was a Na'ar. He was a young man. The dudes going with Abraham were Na'ars. A Na'ar can be your servants. A Na'ar can be a servant who is ruling over servants. That's not a little six-year-old boy. A Na'ar is Shechem who rapes Dinah. That's not a six-year-old boy raping a woman. That's a grown man. But he's a young man in the prime of his youth. David was a Na'ar. He was already called a warrior. He is not a boy when he fights Goliath, nor is he fearful, ready to sidestep the giant. Look at this picture here. Who's the aggressor? 
Goliath. That's a depiction that is not true. You read scripture, David ran at Goliath quickly. He is the aggressor, just like he chased down a lion and a bear and smashed them with a bare hand. An R, not a little six-year-old. Do we understand scripture? Do you picture Samson as somewhat of a pedestrian man? Do you picture him like this? You can use archaeology. That is not Samson. You can go back and see how big Samson would have been and why he was placed where he was. And that's a fascinating story that's beyond what we do today. But I can tell you what, he was a big dude. How did Elijah go up to heaven? Yes, there we go. Who got it? Oh, I need to throw. Here we go. This will get there. Um, so you're, we all saw what in the flannel graph? The fiery chariot. What is the real story? You got Elijah going to heaven. You got Elisha here. If he sees him go up, he'll get twice his power. God puts a fiery chariot between them to cause a distraction. Who won't be distracted with the chariot of fire? And he goes up in the whirlwind in the back. Now, those are not salvation issues, but it's a question. Do we understand Scripture, or do we follow this garbage of flannel graphs and put false information, one piece after another, into our mind? Here's what happens. Oh, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard the armor was too big. Yeah, I've heard there was no dinosaurs on the ark. Yeah, I heard the elephants are too big to fit. Yeah, I've heard David was a little boy. Yeah, I've heard about the fairy. I've heard, therefore it must be true. We're so arrogant. I have read the word of God, therefore it's true. Versus I have heard. So think about our culture. Oh yeah, I've heard that. I've heard this about, I mean, you can talk about disease states and what virus particles do and their size and things. Oh, I've heard that, therefore it's true. Wait a minute. Is that actually reality? This is propaganda. The reason why, who's the little g-god of this world? It is Satan. The reason why you've heard all sorts of pure crap is because he is a master at propaganda over, 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 over. He says things that aren't true, and you start to believe the Word of God is not true. Number six, when we hear something over and over, we should carefully weigh it for truth, which means we weigh it against Scripture. We should weigh it for truth. So what does the word of God say? 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, which means most of us will be deceived. In this instance, bad company corrupts good morals. Bad propaganda, things that you've heard all the time, hanging with people who don't treasure the word of God and in fact denigrate it by just things they say all the time. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that. That has a corrosive impact on your soul. The truth is what we've got to be after. So here is one, uh, Matt Borg. Is Matt here today? I'm not sure. But Matt talked to me on one. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, Psalm 51. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. What does that mean? At the moment of conception, life begins, but your sin nature begins there too, and it comes from the Father. That's the teaching. But look at your different translations. So we were kind of talking about this. Here's the ESV. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Oh, wait a minute. My mama had an illicit affair. That's what that's teaching, which is true. You see how a translation can dramatically change your understanding? How do we make sense of this stuff? All Scripture is inspired by God, proffered teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All Scripture... 
This psalm in 119, 160, is, it's an amazing one. The entirety of your word is truth. Each of your righteous judgments endures forever. The entirety of your word, not this or that. Yes, we can parse the language, the Hebrew, the Greek in one sentence, but how does it interweave as a whole in the entirety? That is what is truth. So let's go to Proverbs 22. Have I not written you excellent things of counsel and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth? So you can give sound answers. The certainty of what is true. Let's see. Which of those translations is correct? Acts 13. After he, the high God, removed Saul, God raised up David to be their king, concerning whom God testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. So it's pretty obvious who gets fat and drops a kid. That's the mama. Well, the dad could cheat. He could, the milkman could come in. So the ESV version of Psalm 51, did the mama who was pregnant, who I all know who she was, did she have an illicit affair? And is that guy then the father of David? And people use that to have this problems with David and his parents. No, his parents just rejected him in, in Psalm 27. Here in Psalm 51, he was not conceived in sin of an affair because who's his father? Who? Well, who said that? God Almighty. I think he can see in the closet where there's affairs happening. So who is the father of David? It's Jesse. It ain't some other guy. So no, the ESV is wrong in what it's telling you. And how did we know that? You can parse the words. You can make a definition. But you know Scripture is always true. You see how that works? So now you know which translation is correct because you're using Scripture to interpret Scripture. And of course, from David comes Jesus. And this is God speaking. So how do we connect the dots on stuff? We have to yield to the word of God. Did his mama have an affair? No. She could have some other time. We don't know that. But David was not born as the product of an affair. Do you see how that works? Uh, and so you can dance around Psalm 51 and get into your Hebrew and all this stuff, but you can't violate scripture with your conclusion. So the affair didn't happen. So now let's get down to the patriarchs and looking at these timelines and stuff. And we're going to do a little riddle. Genesis 5.32. Noah was 500 years old. Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, Japheth. Who's the oldest son of Noah? Could be Shem. Often God puts the most important guy first, but we don't know that. So I want you guys, this, you got to have a couple minutes here. Take your Bible. Go to Genesis 10.21. Open your word. Go to the your uh, phone. And I want to hear an answer. Who is the oldest son of Noah? you got to use Scripture. You start thinking you know, bark it out. We have a Japheth. We have a Japheth. But I'm trying to stimulate an argument. Oh, there's also Shem. What? Ooh. They're not triplets. I mean, I'm trying to poke the tiger and get a debate here. Who, who, who is it? Shem. It's Shem is the oldest. Now, are you guys in agreement? Are you not both reading the Holy Scriptures? How come I'm hearing two completely opposite answers? It can't be both. You ever gone through that? Is this, 
You ever study the Bible and start getting a little frustrated with what's going on? What do you see, Ben? What's your answer? Okay, so we have a Bible scholar over there who's trying to figure this thing out. And I'm trying to make you frustrated. Here we go, Genesis 10.21. I just am highlighting things, so don't overread this. I've done the thinking for you on it. The Japheth was the older. Nope, Shem was the older. Oh, it's Shem, it's Shem. Okay, three out of four, it must be Shem. Wait a minute. Japheth is the elder. Shem is the elder. Japheth is the elder. Shem is the elder. What? Number seven. True or false, translators are inspired authors of Scripture. False. False. I am not an inspired guy. Neither is Mike. Neither is D. Neither is the Pope. Neither are the church fathers. The authors of Scripture are inspired. Neither are translators. So we have to always make sure we don't find an error in the Word of God. Here we go, a few more. Japheth, Elder. Shem, Elder. Japheth, Elder. Shem, Elder. Japheth, Elder. <clears throat> Dadgummit! Now I sent Josh on this goose chase. Did you ever figure it out? How many hours did you spend on that? Okay. Too many hours on the goose chase. And now Josh corrected me on something that we'll show in a minute. Uh, but the point is, it really doesn't matter who the oldest is, but are we working and wrestling? I spent hours on this one a while ago. So what is the principle? What is the principle to resolve a problem? If you think you found an error in Scripture, you have the error. How have you gone wrong? What do you do about it? And Josh tried to do and spent too many hours on this darn thing, and you get frustrated. There's all sorts of them like that in the Bible. Here's one. Use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Genesis 5.32. Noah's 500 years old, and he became the father of Shem, Ham, Japheth. There's Noah. We got Shem. We got Ham. We got Japheth. We don't know who's the oldest yet. Then we have the flood. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, the same day, all the fountains of the great deep, 40,000 miles, continuous underwater volcanoes blow up at once. All the fountains of the deep, and this word burst open. What does that mean? Rapid movement. The continental drift now, we're 4,000 years roughly after the flood. This is a puny leftover. It was moving fast at them. And of course, you can see, any grade school kid can see why our earth takes the shape it does. That was a flood of Noah that did that. Burst open here at the flood, parting the waters to the Red Sea. Korah's rebellion, Moses, Old Testament, the earth bursts forth, breaks down, shuts him in. One of the most fascinating in Zechariah, that's still Old Testament Hebrew, prophesying about the end. How do we know we're not in the kingdom now? There's multiple things. Here's one. We are not in the kingdom now. The church is not the kingdom. The kingdom will happen in the king, millennial kingdom of Christ. Here is one in Zechariah burst open. Jesus lands on the Mount of Olives. Bang! Foot, foot. He's not in the air. The rapture ain't this. The second coming, he lands. Mount of Olives, what does it do? It bursts open. Same word. Verse open, through the Mount of Olives, the remnant of Israel, they're getting screwed. Half of them are already destroyed. They escape through. And notice how that connects back to the flood. And then in the, in the millennium, we will perform the Feast of Booths, which is recognizing that fact. Are we doing the Feast of Booths now? Did Jesus land? Is Mount of Olives cracked open? No, we're not in the kingdom. In the 600th year, now we're going back to the sons of Noah, though. So Noah, after the flood, began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in the tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father 
told his two brothers. So who's the guy we're talking about now? Ham. Okay, so we go later in this. Noah woke from his wine. He knew what his youngest son had done to him. Who's the youngest? Ham. Okay, so let's start moving along. We have three sons. Who's the youngest? Ham. So we have to use scripture to figure that out. Now, Noah was 500 years old, and he became the father. That's when he started having these three kids. Those weren't his only three kids. We don't know how many he had, but why do you wait to 500? Those are the only three that got on the ark with him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came. And I showed you that. There's other verses that say that. So he had 500 when he started having these kids. He is 600 at the flood. So how old would his firstborn be at the start of the flood? 100. I mean, we've got math majors here. At the start of the flood, he'd be 100 because Noah's 500 when we had him. 600 with the flood. Those are not rounded numbers. Those are exact. Hebrews 11, these are the records of the generation of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of our Paxad two years after the flood. So two years after the flood, how old was Shem? Two years after the flood, how old was Shem? 100. So he was 100 two years after the flood. So when the flood came, how old was Shem? 98, but the flood lasted a whole year. So minus two for this, minus a year for the year-long flood. At the start of the flood, Shem would be 97. So who is the oldest son of Noah? Japheth. Japheth would be the oldest son because Shem, we figured out, would be only 97 at the start of the flood. And the oldest has to be 100. You see how that worked? And that's a boondoggle to go figure out, isn't it? Uh, it's tough to try to do some of these things, but it's interesting to get us to think. So now we can put them in order. We know Ham is the youngest, and Shem must be the second. Therefore, of these three, starting at age 500, Japheth is the first. Now, that is not in a critical issue. The issue is, are we being Bereans? Now, here I'll show you most of the more literal ones. NIV is not all the more literal, but they get it right here, and the New American Standard gets it wrong. Japheth the elder, Japheth the elder, Japheth the elder, Japheth the elder, Japheth the elder. Notice most of these are the more literal translations, by the way. What is inspired? The original autograph. So here's your Bible comparisons. Why do we even waste time with this garbage over here? I don't because of this. Yeah, I've heard that before. Uh, a friend, a good friend in a Bible study I'm with sent me a psalm, Psalm 16, little snippets of two verses from New Living. And I read that and said, that is, you get things from God because you choose to dwell and abide here, not because you run there when you're in trouble. But the New Living totally gives you the wrong thought, just like the ESV, which is usually a good one, but it gives you the wrong thought with Psalm 51. So we need to be diligent reading the Bible all the time so we don't read garbage and say, oh yeah, I've heard that before. Stick with the Word of God. So hopefully your head's kind of spinning a little bit as we go through some of these. Um, but here is these genealogies, and here's where I made a mistake. So I want to get this clarified. If you want to take a picture of this slide, a couple of people asked, do it in a minute. So this one's got an error on it. So we was talking about Abraham and Noah up there and how Noah would have lived to see Abraham, and Abraham would have left Ur after Noah died. And you could say, Noah said I was there, where Abraham could talk to Noah. 500 years was up until Shem, so it'd be 600 years. Don't take a picture of this one yet. Do the next one, because this has an error. So Josh found an error that I did. 
Uh, and he sent me some information on this. Now, that's actually interesting. Do we hold to what we think? I hate to be wrong. I'm sure you're no different than me. But are we willing to say, wait a minute, ah, I need to look better. So I remember last week thinking, wow, that's pretty interesting. It doesn't change any of the big stuff here, but let's look at Abraham, because there's a verse that says Terah was 70, but he would have actually been 130. See how we'd have to move these guys out? So how do we resolve this? Terah lived 70 years, became the father of Abraham, Nahor, just like the sons of Noah. But that doesn't mean Abraham was born here. He's just the most important of them. He's actually born when Terah was 130. But you have to do other math that we're not going to do to get to that. So this is a correct one. So take a picture of this one. This is Abraham being born when Terah is 130. So now we look at Shem, and we see Shem easily sees Abraham, but he doesn't quite outlive him. But Eber does, the father of the Hebrews. And there's Jacob, and remember him in Egypt, so he's going to give this here. He's still talking about these guys. It's just moved by 60 years. And there's Noah. He barely misses Abraham. So I just wanted to correct that so you heard it, it the right way. And Josh is the one that figured that out. Good job, Josh. Are we internally consistent or consistent with reality? So here's one that we talked about last week. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7. And I don't know if you've been in some group where some people try to get into the Hebrew, and the Hebrew word can mean a young girl or a virgin, either one. Now, the Greek in the New Testament, Parthenos, is virgin and only virgin. But is this a virgin? And it's King Ahaz, and he's worried he's going to lose his kingdom, and so God sends this answer. And so you can look at some things that happen proximally, but the real question is this. Number eight, the proper understanding of the virgin in Isaiah 7 is that it pertains to Mary. Excellent. Pertains to Mary. How do we know that? So you can argue all day long and parsing the words and getting onto the little lichens on the bark of a tree and miss the forest, right? So what is the word virgin there in Isaiah? And it can mean various things, but let's look at God's commentary in Matthew 1. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the virgin birth, right? So it can have other meanings as well. But what is the primary? That's about Jesus. See, it's not that hard once you have the rest of Scripture. So our last thing we'll do is look at the heart. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. It's where you make a willful decision. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who gives a, asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. It's in your heart. So we've got our flesh, we have our mind, our prefrontal cortex. This heart is the interface between them. It's where we make decisions, what we want to choose is it important to know what we believe? Like how big the ark was? How did you get dinosaurs on it? How did Elijah go to heaven? Is it important to know what? Yeah, but what's far more important? If we're going to give a reason, we must answer why. We have to know what. That's first, second, third grade. And that's why the flannel graphs are so bad, because it teaches you wrong what's. Why is how you put it together. You can't give an answer when you simply know what. You have to go beyond that and know why. Why is the virgin birth important? Why did we have to do sacrifice? Why could it not be grain? Why did it have to be an animal? Why did it have to shed blood? 
Why did Jesus have to shed blood? See how all those things are whys? You have to know the what, but then you have to interweave it to ask, answer why. Number nine, to give a reason for our faith, we must understand why we believe it. To give a reason for our faith, we must understand why, not just what. So the what can be wrong, but why? What, what's really going on with the flood? What is God doing? Does God actually judge sin or not, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the end times? Now that we understand the flood and the catastrophe that it was, now we can understand this. But if you don't want, like judgment, if you're a humanist, you're going to deny the flood and you're going to do it this way. Look how stupid that is. It couldn't happen. Therefore, there can't be a second coming. How do we connect the dots? We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We, however, are from God. This is the gospel writers. John, one of the last ones to write. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and error. What is the arbiter? It's not the pope. It's not the pastor. It's sure not me. It's the word of God. The original scripture. Nothing outside that is truth. It can shed light on truth, but it is not truth. And we got to use Scripture to interpret Scripture. We want to be like the Bereans who are more noble-minded because they wanted, with great eagerness, they wanted the truth, but they verified what was being preached from the pulpit. Uh, and so it can be little things. That's fine. But then there's big things. Are we correct with our theology? And we're always wrong. But the question is, are we willing to learn and grow? And that's what we want to do as men and women of God. How about Revelation? What is that about? It's about the end times, the apocalypse, uh, but there's a better answer. It's about Jesus Christ. It's the revealing. It's, the un- it's not the revealing of the end times. It's not the revealing of the tribulation. Yes, it does those things, but what is it? Oh, that guy. It's unveiling. It's revealing. It's pulling the curtain back onto that guy. That's what Revelation is. And look, it's the only book that tells you you're blessed. You read, you study this book. Doesn't tell you that in Kings. Doesn't tell you that in other, other stuff. Number 10. After the origin in Genesis, the book of Revelation may be the most important scripture. And it's held out, you're blessed. So I'm just going to show you one, and we're not even going to mention the tribulation in this. I'm just going to show you as we talk about the revelation of who? Jesus Christ, and what is he? He is the Alpha and the Omega. Right off the bat, in one, and you read who's speaking here, it is the man, and then you see how he shows up in the Old Testament, the second person, Jesus Christ, and that'll be a thing we talk about in a different class. I am, and then he goes on to define it, I am. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end. Old Testament now, back to Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, there is no God. Do you see this echoing? And you notice this is not Elohim, God. This is Yahweh, intimate, personal, covenant relationship. And notice he is a Redeemer. He is a blood relative of man. Wow. God, Elohim, gives man, but he doesn't come and die for man. Yahweh does that. The second person of the Trinity is this, and that's in Isaiah again. Listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel whom I called. Yes, God calls Israel, but it is 
Yahweh, not the Elohim. It is Yahweh who's intimate with Israel. I am he. I am the first. I am the last. So this is just a brief little thing. If you look, it's all about the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega. Look how Revelation seals this back. And you know now when you're reading the Old Testament and you see Yahweh... There's Elohim, God, there's Yahweh, the Lord. You know much better exactly who that is talking about. There's different roles and jobs that Elements of the Trinity does. And it's amazing. We'll have a class later that kind of delves into that. But it's all about Jesus Christ. I and the Father are one. But Jesus does some interesting things as he becomes a human. How do we connect the dots Do we realize that every book in Scripture is about the Alpha and the Omega? Do we realize that? Do we realize the book of Judges is ultimately about the Alpha and the Omega? And why? And why is he even speaking in it? Whoa! Changes everything when you realize that. Here's John the Baptist. He, the Alpha and the Omega, must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth and He who comes from heaven is above all. The entirety of the scriptures, that is truth. And it endures eternally, forever. 11. The entirety of God's word is truth, and it endures forever. Notice the heavens and the earth will pass away, but my word will not. His word is eternal. That is power. So we want to be like the Bereans and study but submit to that word of God. We looked at the truth, and it's amazing to me to realize the high priests at the time of Jesus, Annas and Caiaphas, are both Sadducees. There's no angel. There is no resurrection. Holy smokes, there's an angel in a resurrection. How do we deal with that? We're not going to deal with that because we're the line of Cain, and we are the authority, and we determine truth. So we simply reject it and bribe to not even have to look at the data for the truth. We want to be like the Brians who search Scripture daily. We looked at the patriarchs. There's fascinating stuff in there. And it doesn't matter who's correct as we look at any different things. What matters is, do we grow as iron sharpens iron and we all make mistakes at various times in our life? And are we willing to submit ourselves to the Word of God? Or do we remain stubborn because I have a favorite idea of some kind? What's in our heart Do we set apart Christ as Lord, or do we want to be the Alpha? Uh, We better pray uh, so we can get rolling. Dear Lord, I just thank you for another beautiful day. Thank you uh, for your word and its truth and its internal consistency. Help us to be men and women that strive to honor you by diligently preparing to handle your word correctly because we study it and we ignore and don't pay attention to propaganda and words of man just so we hear, yeah, I heard that. We want to know your voice because we're immersed in it. In Jesus' name, amen.